Hi, welcome to Talking Design, brought to you by RMIT University. I've got two very special guests with me today, an architect and interior designer. You may have heard of them before. They're called Multiplicity. Sue Clark is an interior designer and Tim O'Sullivan is an architect. And together they've won various awards over the 10 years or so they've been in operation. We won an oven once. (laughs) Well, that's well done, Tim. Thank you, Stephen. Um, Thanks for coming in to uh, speak to me today. Pleasure. I've been following your work for some time now. uh, And uh, I remember seeing your very first project... And I was quite blown away, to be quite honest. I walked through this old warehouse in Brunswick, mm-hmm. and I remember before I even entered, you said, I'm not quite sure whether you'll like it or not. It's very brown. And it was wonderful, full of recycled materials. But it was very brown, wasn't it? It was very brown. Yeah, but and the it was... brown was a contrast to the white. <laughs> but it was very tactile. Brown and white. It's very tactile, and um, I'd never seen anything like it before, and I was really quite taken with it, and I've been following your career for a number of years now. Tell me a little bit about how the practice started. Goodness, who starts? Um, well, I floated in from Sydney, because originally I... Originally from Western Australia. And I decided Sydney was... Uh, the design wasn't design world wasn't as interesting in Sydney as it was in Melbourne. So I decided to wait for a good recession to hit and then head down to Sydney and to find Melbourne. some... Melbourne. Because it's a great time to pick up a bit of work, I thought. You've now <laughs> been going for about 10 years. A bit over 10 years? Yeah. Oh, it's it's, it's years. sort of interesting. I think a lot of architectural practices will um, be a bit fuzzy about when they started because they don't want it to sound like dinosaurs. We're know. a young and upcoming practice. <laughs> um, yeah. but, uh, but the- What's interesting with your work, just for people who don't know your work, they've done uh, multiplicity in a number of um, residential projects. Mm-hmm. They, they won a number of awards for a church they did in central Victoria. Uh, it's not the only project. I know, but it was one that, that was very significant, won a major it award. a lot of, yeah. And got a lot of media attention. Really well, it's interesting, just quickly, you asked how we formed. Um, when Multiplicity actually started, it was because um, the, where I'd been engaged with work, when I met Sue, that fell apart, and Sue was still cleaning up aspects of it, but I was doing nothing. And there was a limited competition in Perth to do a... a a, um, no, it wasn't. It was an international competition, architectural competition, to redesign the Perth foreshore. Mm-hmm. And so we got involved in this competition and we invited a couple of friends of mine who were architects as well, or graduate architects mm-hmm. from Perth, and we set up a little consortium and we entered this international competition. And I think there was about 150 entries and we were well, basically in the end, they sort of shortlisted 10 projects that they viewed and we got shortlisted out of that 10. Mm-hmm. So... We actually started buying large-scale international work. Well, if we go back to your the first project you did, which was the warehouse, and I remember there was it was there was a riverbed of pebbles yes. you hand laid. Hand laid. It was a labour of love, basically the whole thing. But it was it was you used a lot of recycled materials. It was probably one of the first projects that I'd seen. Well, this is already you know many many years ago where recycled materials was becoming popular. Mm-hmm. But you actually didn't use recycled materials in a hokey way. It was very refined and very sophisticated. Um, And I was very impressed at the time. Now, of course, every second architect uses recycled materials. There's a whole sustainable push Mm -hmm. towards recycling. Um, 
But at the time, I thought it was extraordinary the lengths that you went to. Tell me about, I mean, there was a, you wanted a brown toilet to go into the bathroom, <laughs> didn't you? There was a program on 3LO called Where Do You Get It? where people used to ring in and say, I'm interested and does anyone have? And Sue kept on talking a memory about brown and green, olive green toilets, and she was determined to find one. So I one day said, oh, look, you know, I'll ring up 3LO during this time and just see if it has a brown toilet. So there was a lot of toilet humour when the request came over. But I think we got two or three phone calls back and a couple um, a couple had, were renovating their house and they said their brown toilet was a butt of jokes for many years and they'd taken it out and they cleaned it up and they said, it's sitting here and it's yours to take. So we went and grabbed it and it was the most beautiful toilet. What do recycled materials, what do they do to an interior or a piece of architecture if they're used in the right way. They give it history, they give it warmth, they give it texture, they give it individuality. It's interesting, like, how we used... And look, we were very influenced by Six Degrees, especially by their Archie Bar and the use of panelling and recycled materials. But I suppose the way we we find things, I think um, Pete and the guys were had contacts with people that were doing demolition, and the demolition people ring up and say, hey, "We've got this. Are you interested?" Mm-hmm. And they put, "We find things. We'll just be walking down the street, and we'll see something, and we'll go, oh, that's gorgeous.'" And we'll just you don't often know what you're going to do with it, though. No, do you? no, you no, store it for just, a while. It's just a matter of seeing some quality in in something that um, could have another life, and then later down the track persuading a particular client that that might be suitable for their application. Well, I, I remember being at Heidi, oh, this was about a year or two yeah, ago. Heidi Museum. Was, yeah. Heidi Museum, and there was young artists being shown, and there was some really interesting work, and it was quite crowded, so you had this sort of crowd of people, you're almost in a queue walking past, and there was one piece that was just a bit of plywood that someone had found, and it was exquisite. It just had shape and form, and it had been burnt in a corner, and they just put it on as a piece of work, and was someone it? in front of us was saying, oh, you know, that's not art, and there's an argument to be made for that but as an object it was exquisite and the person who found it as an artist had the eye to realize this is a beautiful object within its own right and they put it on the wall and i think sue and i have that ability to see something and see it not as rubbish but to see its potential but there was a more recent project that you did that was has been extensively um published uh westwick mm-hmm. a, school, uh, a school that was converted into a number of townhouses and a a house for the owners. Tell me a little bit about how that evolved because it is an interesting project. It was a school built around the turn of the century. Turn of the century. It was a school, then it went through various changes, and during the Kennett era, it was put up for sale. And our clients, Mike and Lorne, who went on to form Westwick, they were very frightened that it would be demolished. So they initially bought it with the idea of it being a community-based... They bought the whole school. The whole school, yeah. Um, With a group of friends. They were interested in community-based sort of social activities, social agenda. Over time, they realised that it was a large parcel of land and they they started having very sustainable green uh, ambitions and so they decided to started as a community-based green sustainable development. So what does that mean for people who are listening? What are the type of there issues? There are people that, listening. Yes, there are, <laughs> apart from your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about some of the issues, the sustainable issues well, that they're after. That they want well, number one, the most sustainable thing they're doing is they're rejuvenating and reusing existing building. Because, like, for all the green things we can do, and this is what really frightens me about Melbourne... 
we just keep demolishing buildings and then talking about the new buildings we build, which are green. When the amount of embodied energy to demolish these over, get rid of the materials and rebuild is horrendous. So the most sustainable thing they are doing from the very outset is they are reusing, reinvigorating these buildings. And an existing building that has... Um, a history and is significant to the community because it's sat in that streetscape for a hundred plus years. Stage one, which is the south side of the site, is incorporated seven apartments within the um, existing building, of which we've only worked on one, which is the old school hall, which is the one that's been published. And there's five new terraces um, along the streetscape. And as part of that community, they um, treat their black water on site. They treat their sewage on site. Um, they have grey grey water recycling. They have photovoltaic cells to sustain their energy use. They have solar hot water. Well, everything that goes into it is evaluated for its... Um where it comes from, from, who makes it, what's it, what's it, it and is then made you, out And then you also recycled some of the furniture that was originally in the school. Within as, our unit we did, yes. Yeah. One thing else that's very interesting about the design is that if you haven't used recycled materials, you've kind of evoked a sense of the past in some of the contemporary de- in insertions you've made, such as the, um, the lovely benches, the lovely built-in cupboards in the bedroom, which resemble old-fashioned school Oh, okay, oh, yes. The balustrade. Yeah. Next to the balustrade. There's a sense of the past, but yeah. it's, it's seriously contemporary design. I, th- I think in, in every project there's an undercurrent of trying to understand both the site the and most of our works renovation, so the existing building and something about the client and and a wider sort of scheme of architectural relevance, I suppose. And unlike some of the renowned architects in our day and, and who, um, who veto everything that goes into a house, they want to make sure everything <laughs> is uh, designer furniture, mm-hmm. designer lighting, everything has to be the latest... What's interesting about your practice is you actually work around people's things. We, we try and say to our clients that, um, especially when you're working in, in the residential arena, the relationship goes on for a period of time and you work quite intimately with people. So there's no point of beating around the bush. If, if, um, if there's something that we think is not going to work, we believe it's our responsibility to say so. But having having said that, we'll try our best to accommodate what people might throw at us. And we'll look, in the end, it. most people have a budget. And so a lot of the work we do is for, I suppose, um, real working families. <laughs> Sorry. Coming out there, but but yeah, a lot of our clients they have a limited budget, and we try to achieve as much as we can for that budget. And sometimes it just does not extend to going out and buying a you know twenty thirty thousand dollar lounge room. And the other thing I'd have to say, some architects have two arms to their business. They might do development work, or they might do buildings they don't particularly want their name on, Mm -hmm. and then they do their own more creative work. Tim would love to do that because um, that way we'd actually ra- we'd, we'd draw a, we'd make a living as mm. opposed to everything we do being laboured. But you really, you you know, there's certain things you won't do. I, I think I'd say that if we take on a job, 
it is very, very rarely we will turn our back on it and go, oh, look, just let's get it, let it be what it is. We will push pretty hard. If we think we've got a client that's not understanding the design, we will, we won't let go. We'll keep pushing to try to get an outcome because generally we, we don't, at the end of our career, we want to sit back and say nearly everything we did, we put in an effort and most of the things we produced had a beauty Getting back to whether it's, you know, something like Westwick or the church in in central Victoria or a renovation that you've done, how do you tend to start the process? You obviously see the site and speak to the clients, get an idea of where they're coming from. How does it tend to evolve? Because it is... Difficult that's process. where we're looking at each other. Yeah. Well, I, I think because work? most of our work is renovation. Um, and would love to do a new house, but most of our house. we'd love to do a new building of any persuasion. Yeah, most of our work is renovation, so we intensively investigate the site, and that usually is we go out with a team of us and we measure the building so we know it reasonably intimately. Then we sit it down and then. At some point, you you either keep pushing it away or eventually you'll sit down. Really, architecture and design is about sitting at a desk with a piece of paper and a pencil and, sometimes and it, just putting in hours. And putting in hours. And some, the way we work, even though I'm the interior designer, I end up doing most of our um, contract admin and most of our liaison with councils, with councils and planning particularly falls on my oh. head. Um, and Tim ends up doing countless joinery details. So we we'll swap roles quite what, a lot. What we actually do is, uh, say for argument's sake, we've got a, a, a typical house, or say it's a church, and someone wants to turn it into um, a house, or, or we're given a brief of how to change your existing house. Usually the process is, we'll do a design. Just Even if things aren't going well, if like, you get sort of writer's designer's block, we'll just design something up and so we'll come over and say, oh, God, that's terrible, Tim, what about it? And then just by the process of actually putting your foot forward, you usually find that something else occurs and you start thinking, oh, we could do this with the bathroom. And then you start thinking, oh, maybe I could put the kitchen there. And basically we churn work out for... Most times when we're doing a schematic presentation, we've got five or six designs, and usually there's another five, six, seven. I know Corrigan used to work like that. He used to constantly do a design, then redo it and redo it. Does that make it problematic for clients? If you give them too many options... Certain clients, yeah. They would, um, they get confused, and they really don't know what they're looking at, and they don't... Really, a confused really, client is a good client, Stephen. I, I think we've talked about this a lot, because um, it would certainly be more... Uh, save a lot of time if we've just presented one or maybe two um, steps. What we find is we have clients that come to us with um, budgets. We have, you know, brief and a budget, and sometimes the the brief and the budget don't align themselves. So what we um, advise the clients that we'll do is that we'll do a design or two or three as it ends up, that will marry the brief and then another one that will relate to the budget. And by the schematic process, what we're trying to do is we're trying to enforce a client to prioritise. So they can leave yeah. things out if they well, can't. Yeah, it, look, we've had just, we did a presentation yesterday to new clients and they had put in their brief city views. So did they have city we, views? No, uh, well, there was, there was, we took um, we took this lead from Herzog and Demuron and, and put a house on top of the house so that we've got actually a, basically a four-storey on a Californian bungalow so they would get the city view. So if that 
if the budget isn't the driver, but the city views a drive is the driver, this is the proposition that you know we're putting to you as a serious proposition. However, if the budget is the driver, then you've got to look at keeping everything at ground level. So and we'll, we, we give will council approve of a house on a house. Yeah, there's no planning requirements, so and we we can fully comply with. Mm. West Victorian yeah. um, building regulations. The other so thing about, not. look, um, and we know, we speak to other architects and they go, you what, you provide five or six different but options, you're crazy. Anyway. But we're doing them anyway, but we like to learn as much as we can about the clients at an early stage, and that's usually around schematic. So if you present five or six designs, and if clients get a bit confused, yeah. we say, look, just sit down and write what the positives and negatives are as a source of actually gaining information about the client's likes, dislikes, how far you can push a client, where they're cautious, where they're strong, to present a whole range of ideas and get that feedback is invaluable. And it's better to get that information early rather than when you're in documentation and clients start saying, oh, I can't go here. So said that there, there are jobs like um, we did a, a project for one of Tim's friends in Perth where I was out somewhere and had an idea for, for the... Um, it was a duplex, um, scribbled it literally on the piece of paper, came back to Tim and said, I think this is the way we should go. We, we drew it, presented it, and that, that's been built. So that was a really, really quick... When we did the um, Shire, Hep and Shire building... Just one idea. When it we was did one idea, it was quick. Cafes, yeah. So there's yeah. a lot of work we do just do the one design, but generally when we're doing yeah. renovations, we do... clients, I won't mention and names here because there may be people listening but I remember that lovely story where you presented several schemes to one client and she said I've seen all that I've seen all that I've seen all that I was thinking where are you and I've seen all that and she'd flick her hair at the same time Stephen and um, I think it was hilarious because in the end she didn't proceed and Tim nearly killed her and (laughs) I remember there you took one look at her interior and thought she does know everything Um, (laughs) but I remember at the end of the day she'd bought a heritage building or there was a heritage building on the site that she'd bought so she couldn't do very much with it anyway no and that was kind of a discovery um, I think in the piece. that client just took, kept on talking think, about European appliances and, yeah. As soon do you as think, some, do somebody you, mentions appliances, yeah. um, we, we think um, we're either lost the client or we're not. We're not do you think that's you know, we, happening with a lot of people now, that they're interested in gadgets rather than design? And, uh, think, I think it's happening a lot. And I think there's two really sad things. <clears throat> we usually say to clients, if in the end your friends walk into one of, one of our renovations and all they can say is, oh, I love the appliances, then we've <laughs> dramatically failed. If they walk into the space and you've got, you know, a, an ordinary oven and they don't notice at all and go, wow, fantastic space, I love being here, then we've won. The well, other thing I was going to say quickly, I'm uh, one thing I think is a bit of a concern for the industry, I think a lot of designers in the architectural field now are just becoming glorified shoppers. The, instead of designing things... They just go down to, and there's no shortage of really beautiful places to buy lights and appliances taps. and taps. And, and a lot of architects aren't actually designing anything. They're just buying I things. I... The other thing I was going to ask you, uh, Tim and Sue, you know, if I said to you, look, what would you love to do ideally? Is it is it a new house? Is it What's something that you'd love to do? Is it a, a large commercial project? Uh, no, actually. Do we because agree we, on this? I, look, I would love to do... <laughs> I'd love to do, 
You know, in the uh, Treasury Park, they demolished a beautiful set of toilets a couple of years ago because I apparently it was a gay hanger. I'd love to get a commission to do a simple, beautiful job like that. Something as simple as, uh, I'd like it to I be in the public arena, I'd like it to be toilets or something like that, a restroom. did that beautiful restroom side of the freeway, oh, yeah. freeway somewhere. That yes, was just, it was. And I think... Do, working for residential clients is just so rewar- it's so soul destroying and timely and whatever, but it's also so rewarding that you're actually creating spaces for people to live in. But there's a limited access to those spaces, so you can spend your life doing work that most it isn't relevant to most of the community. And I think Tim and I would actually like to do a piece of work that other than our immediate clients, Scott. Uh, for me, it, it's something like a library, mm. um, a commercial building, or a theatre, something something of that ilk. It, it wouldn't have to be large, but... Uh. but... Look, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been a pleasure talking to Sue Clark and Tim O'Sullivan from Multiplicity, and I look forward to seeing more of your creations in the near future. Thank Thanks you, Stephen. It's been Thanks, very enjoyable. Stephen.